You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Welcome, listener, to episode 13 of the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. We're glad that you're joining us for uh, the spooky and superstitious number of episode 13. And it's only appropriate that in this unfortunate numbered episode that we're going to be talking about the devil. But as always, before we get into that, I want to remind you, go ahead and leave a like, a review, whatever the positive interaction is on the platform you're listening to. That really helps us grow the audience and get out there and hear more about the devil in this case. <laughs> and maybe one of these days, you know, I have dreams and aspirations. I don't know about you guys about being, you know, on the top of the leaderboards on Spotify and iTunes, like, you know, up there with like the Bible project and all of them. That would be really, really cool. Oh man. I don't know, man. Those are pretty big dreams. <laughs> I think it can happen. Uh, so first of all, I, I feel like since you mentioned superstition, I have to quote Michael Scott, who said, I'm not superstitious, but I am a little stitious. <laughs> um, but it's it's ironic to me that you would talk about the devil and then compare us to other podcasts, because that's kind of where things go astray in this passage, right? Yes, talking about the devil on the 13th episode, but not we're not recording this on a Friday. So I think we're, <laughs> a little bit, Amen. we're a little bit good here. So, okay. So reading from the ESV, Genesis chapter 3, we're going to look at 1 through 6. We looked at uh, these verses last time, but just to refresh ourselves. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And I feel like there should be, like at this point in our narrative, da-da-da-da, or this is, you know, <laughs> or you can hear the Jaws music as the serpent is approaching Eve. You know, this we already have this preconceived notion of the, the sinister turn in the storyline. Yeah, and this is this is just one of those passages that raises a thousand questions for what's going on, how it's going on, you know, how did the devil get into the Garden of Eden, all that stuff. Well, I was thinking about how, you know, if you've ever watched a movie over and over again, like a movie you really like, and the characters or somebody's about to make a bad decision, and you're always thinking, no, don't, don't do it, don't do it, and it doesn't matter every time. They're going to do it anyway. Do the same thing. <laughs> 
It reminds me of those commercials that came out recently where it's uh, like the, the people are set in a horror movie and they make the worst possible decision for how to handle the moment. Let's go hide in that garage full of chainsaws. <laughs> oh, yeah, instead of getting in the running car. Yeah, that's it. Uh, <laughs> uh, he'll so never true. find us in there. Uh, yeah, so this is where things go horribly wrong. Uh, so w- when y'all think about this passage, Matt, you're a pastor as well. What What's some of the questions you usually field on Genesis 3? Well, probably the number one question I get is about who is the devil? Where did he come from? Why was he in the garden? Questions like that. And I think one of the things that is helpful for me as a pastor when I think about answering these questions is that as a pastor and theologian, I'm attempting to give answers on questions that are just not entirely clear in the Bible. Mm. What's amazing is that I think, and it's probably the result of the medieval church tradition, but I think we build up the devil to a position that he simply is not in the script. We talked in the previous episode, we don't even know his name. Yeah, most of the titles are functional, yeah. Right. Lucifer is not his name. It's just a reference to the day star. So we don't even know his name. We have to piece together passages throughout the Old Testament and then leaning a little bit on a few of the words of Jesus and then Revelation to even kind of come up with a biography, so to speak, of the devil. But even then, every book that or scholarly book that I've ever read on the devil is filled with footnotes of saying, well, it could be, but then it (laughs) also could be this, or it could be this. There's, it's just surprising. We don't know a whole lot about the devil. And, and, and so much, uh, you know, people get uncomfortable with those spaces. By the way, I think those spaces are there precisely for the reason you suggested. He's not the major character of the story. The Bible is primarily about God's, relationship with mankind and the devil factors into that story insofar as he tries to thwart that relationship. Right. Um, right. and that, that possibly speaks to his motivations. You know, we, we've talked about Psalm eight before, uh, that says that mankind was made a little lower, uh, than the Elohim, uh, which the Septuagint translate, uh, translate angels. as Angelis. Yeah. As than the angels, uh, so you were made a little lower than the spiritual beings, but God chose humanity to crown with glory and honor. And you have some extra canonical text um, uh, that say uh, that this devil figure was scandalized uh, by the relationship uh, that God had with humankind, and that possibly serves as the motivation for the rebellion. Uh, but Matt, to your point, it's interesting because the Bible doesn't fill in all the gaps for us, sometimes people go to things that are not recorded in the Bible to fill in those gaps. Um, and so they'll say, you know, before you even get to Genesis 3, you you had some kind of heavenly rebellion. Uh, but another interpretive option, uh, this is not, you know, conclusive, but another interpretive option is that, uh, you know, the Satan figure was scandalized by this relationship between God and man, and so had, you know, rebellion and pride and vanity stored up in his heart, but actually uses this conversation as the inciting act of rebellion. It's, it's not, it's not determinative one way or the, one way or the other. 
so there's so there's so many gaps you guys are talking about in like the story of the devil right because it's not focused on him it kind of reminds me of like my you know my early uh book reading days getting into th- you know stuff and you go online and there's all kinds of like theories that people are posting because if you know there's something not explained in a story people will theorize about it and just run with it and go you know absolutely crazy with it so it sounds to me like people are kind of doing that with this they they want answers so they're having to like go and draw from you know like extra biblical sources to try and piece together you know this character who for all intents and purposes is you know kind of mysterious yeah, if only we had had Reddit boards in antiquity. <laughs> oh, thank goodness we did. So, <laughs> extra biblical sources can be helpful because it reflects how the people of the day. We even have extra biblical sources that come from the time of the writing of the biblical sources that we have. So they can be helpful, but they're not authoritative. So yeah, they're not sometimes. They're not scripture, and they introduce probably just as many questions as they provide answers for clear thinking and things like that. It is interesting to me is that, Gandalf, let me ask you this. If I were to ask you just on the street, you've grown up in church, and I said, hey, Gandalf, I know you've you know been around Christian teaching for a while. You are a Christian. Where did the devil come from? What would be your staple answer based on what you know and what you've understood by growing up in church? I would say that, well, obviously the devil was made by God and that at some off point, off screen, so to speak. Oh, I like that word. Off screen. Uh, Yeah. Rebelled against God at some mysterious point, like in the seven days of creation before it somewhere. And then now he's trying to get even with God and, get Adam and Eve. And can I ask one really big question? Okay. If his rebellion is off screen, why is he still in the Garden of Eden? Yeah, that's that's a great question. Let me push into that. We'll come to that in just a second. I'm going to push into it a little more. There's typically one other detail. It's the devil and a third of the angels is typically the narrative that we've been taught in church that sometime before the temptation in the garden, that the devil fell along with a third of the angels. And so that's where the devil got his start and all the demons got their start. Now, what's interesting and a little bit embarrassing is there really is not scriptural evidence for that at all. There, I, I understand the passages that are used to support that. The problem is the passages used to support that, i.e. Revelation 12, it doesn't support a primordial rebellion of the devil. In fact, when you trace it back... Yeah, Revelation 12 seems to be about the birth of the Messiah. Yeah, it's it's not about a primordial rebellion, but that's the only place it says there was a war in heaven and Satan and his angels warred against Michael and his. So Satan's not at war with God there. He's at war with Michael, of course, ultimately against God. But what's what's interesting to me is that Milton's Paradise Lost is plays most of us have not read that book unless you know it was required reading in school but we're far more informed by its interpretation we yes this whole idea of this primordial rebellion is not rooted in scripture but it is rather rooted in someone's attempt 
i.e. Milton, of course he would have leaned on the theologians of his day, but it's Milton's attempt to fill in the gaps. And now look, you know, 500 years after Milton, and I don't know exactly how long it's been, but it's been a while, all these years after Milton, and we are considering his filling in the gap as authoritative, because that's the staple answer that people give. Yeah, it was a primordial rebellion that Satan and a third of the angels fell. That's not found in Scripture. That is not found in Scripture at all. I remember when I discovered that, I was embarrassed, because I was like, wait a second. I think that's, that is like par for the course conversation in any church that I've ever been a part of. When you talk about when did the devil fall, it's like, well, sometime in the distant past, and, you know, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far so away. So how is he in Eden? Yeah. And we never even asked the question, if the devil was expelled from heaven, how is he in the place where heaven meets earth? And then also, if, if there is not... If there is not a primordial rebellion found in the scripture, then why do we think that it happened in that way? And and Matt, you do have Jewish sources. Uh, you do have Jewish extra canonical sources that treat this as the inciting incident of his rebellion against God. Um, uh, one, and I cannot remember the source off the top of my head. Uh, shame on me. Uh, we were talking about it the other day when I had some sources in front of me. Um, but it essentially said that he led the woman astray, so God called him the devil. Um, he, he, you know, this is the evidence of the rebellion that was already in his heart, uh, enacted through his conversation. And Matt, it's it's neat for me, you know, if there's anything I've learned from this discussion and this passage, it's every question you try to answer launches into a thousand more questions. And so I sympathize with any of our listeners who are. Uh, listening to this and say, well, what about this passage? Or what about this passage? Or what about this passage? Um, my hope is that over time, our podcast addresses all the passages that might be coming to mind right now. But we just, we want to read this within the flow of the story. And we want to take seriously that up until now, we've had this good creation. And somehow in the span of these six verses, whatever motivations uh, you know, we're doing some guesswork, whatever motivations were in the serpent's heart, we're in the, the devil's heart. This is where things take on actual rebellion. Um, and it's it's neat because uh, the devil's doing a little bit of playing God here, right? Um, God, right. Uh, God has created through speaking. The serpent uses a conversation to lead them astray. God sees everything that he made as good, 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 very good. Uh, what does the serpent do? Through this conversation, he gets Eve to see the fruit differently. She says, Genesis 3, 6, the woman saw the fruit was good. That's the first time in Scripture it's happened for someone's perspective other than God. So this is... But not just saw the fruit as good for food. That's the key detail. There. Ah, for because wisdom, God, yeah. Yeah, God, God made it good. The tree of knowledge of good and evil was good, but it was that she saw it as good for food. And it was a delight to the eyes, and it was to be desired to make one wise. So why don't we do this? Why don't we do this? As we look at these six verses in the time we have remaining, let's first just look at the raw data of what we have. What does the raw data say? Not what is our preconceived notion about the story of the devil, the story of the fall, because this is every, many, many people know this story. It's one of the most famous stories in the Bible. What does the raw data say? And then, knowing that's not going to answer all our questions, what does it allow for? 
And then we'll end the, this episode with kind of sharing where, where we are, and we so will submit that humbly because, again, this is our best attempt to put this scripture together with the others. Um, so it, 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 it's interesting uh, for me. Um, when we enter into the second creation account, as we've talked about in weeks past, uh, God is almost exclusively referred to as the Lord God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so even in Genesis 3.1, uh, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Right after this that passage... Would, that would be Yahweh Elohim. Yeah, Yahweh Elohim. Um, uh, and right after this passage in verse 8, you know, after things have gone terribly wrong and they hide, it says they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim. But during the course of the conversation, look what happens. You shift from the Lord God to just God. Um, and so... And that's, uh, that's the serpent who's doing this. Yeah, the serpent is the one who makes that subtle change. Did God actually say? And so then the woman says, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said... And then the serpent says this somewhat cryptic statement. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die, for God knows, and literally in Hebrew... God is one knowing. It's a it's a cow passive participle, which means nothing uh, to most people listening to this, but it's a singular participle. That's interesting. For God is one knowing that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God or maybe gods. This is a, this is a point of discussion we need to m- mention. The interesting thing is that the second participle is not singular, it's plural. You will be like God or God. Suddenly it's one's knowing. It's a cow uh, plural participle. One's knowing good and evil. Uh, And Matt, we were talking about this uh, in the temptation. What is it that the serpent, uh, that the devil is tempting them with? Uh, Is he tempting them to be like God, which would be ironic because they're already created in his image, or is he tempted, tempting them with something else? And how is the translation of this word, which it, which differs across some translations, how does this factor into that? Well, if you take the translation as plural, uh, and just as a reminder, in Hebrew, uh, im is what makes Elohim plural. Uh, now, Elohim is always plural in form. And the way you determine of whether or not it is singular or plural is the context of verbs and prepositions around it. They determine how it's being used. Word, yeah. How it's being used. An English example would be this: sheep. For instance, the sheep is in the uh, is in the pasture, there or there is a sheep in the pasture. Well, the singular use of is says, "Hey, I'm talking about one sheep." I can use the same word, the sheep are in the pasture. And because I change to a plural verb, are, a plural state of being verb, immediately you know, oh, he's talking about more than one. But sheep, it's the same word. Elohim is the same way. The way you know if it's plural or singular has to do with the with the verbs and the prepositions around it. So I want to read to you, Verse number five in the King James. So listen to how the King James, which is word for word translation, like the ESV, but listen to how it translates it. For God doth know 
that in the day ye eat thereof. Then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods. That's plural. G. Plural. Knowing good and evil. In fact, let me read one more translation to you. This is the Net Bible. Yeah, this, and this is a relatively uh, recent translation as well, the New English translation. Right. The mid-90s. So, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5 of the Net Bible, notice how they translate it. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like divine beings. Interesting, who yeah. Who know good and evil. Now, that sounds scandalous to some of us because we think immediately there's a there's a there's a heresy, you know, the warning that uh uh <laughs> that's going off in your mind. Anytime that somebody is suggesting we read the word God differently, there should very it's a healthy thing to have a little alarm going off in your head. I just want you all to hear today what we're saying that we believe this should be translated as plural. This is not novel. This is the way the King James, the 1611, translates this as plural. And it also makes more sense of the Scripture. And as we understand that Eden is where heaven meets earth, that Eden is where man is dwelling with God, there are spiritual beings that are there. We talked about last week that the serpent is more than just an animal. He is re representative of a spiritual being. And so the temptation is not, hey, Eve, Adam, I w do you want to be like God? Well, they've already been made like God. It's rather, Adam and Eve, do you want to be like what I am? Do you want to be like one of the spiritual beings? Which is not what God created man to be. If we go back to our previous discussion, God created the heavenly host to rule the heavenly places. God created man to rule and exercise dominion over the earth. So this is a temptation to cross a boundary and be something that God has not intended man to be. And that makes way more sense to me. And I like that explanation better because, you know, when I'm just reading it from a non-scholarly perspective, it always bothered me that like Eve needed just the slightest bit of provocation for like full on usurping rebellion against God. Uh, hey, uh, right. Gandalf, can I ask a question? Uh, sure. you, so you've seen the Garden of Eden depicted in like in paintings or art once or twice, I'm guessing. Yes. Um, when you see this depicted as a scene, where is the serpent? Almost always. He is in the tree. Yeah. So like coiled up, like you nailed from it. A branch. You nailed it. Uh, can't you just picture this scene? If the temptation is not to be like God, but as the spiritual beings, you know, here's humanity created lower than the angels, but given a special relationship with God. And look how he's deceiving. He plays on the ambiguity from Lord God to God. Uh, and uh, she says, God says we can't eat from this tree or even touch it, which is an addendum to what God actually said. Uh, meanwhile, the serpent's up in the tree and says, I can, <laughs> you know, you know? Uh, uh, he, and, and look what he exploits the very, you know, the thing that it says, God bless them. He says, I've given you every seed bearing, uh, uh, plant for food. Uh, well, Hey, you can't eat from this tree, but spiritual beings can touch it. You, you see, you see how he's twisting the context 
uh, to bring about this sin. And it's just, man, it's fascinating to me. And to give more support for that, Nathan, if we were to jump down to verse 22, to yeah. give more support, in verse 22, um, and let me switch back to the ESV here. Genesis you have two things in verse 22. After, yeah, after the sin has taken place, after God has talked about the curse, and we'll talk about that in future weeks, it says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, man has become like one of us, in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. So w- one thing there is that we've already talked about like one of us for, when we looked at Genesis chapter 1. Like what is the us language You have to navigate, here? is he speaking to spiritual beings, divine counsel, or is this a Trinitarian thing? Yeah. Right. So the 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 problem is is that if you argue that this is the trinity then why does the serpent have knowledge of good and evil at the beginning of this passage and i would I'd also because, say if if it's the trinity okay because in the passage god has acknowledged that something has happened with man man has right. become something other than he was created as right uh, and right. if and if god is saying um if God is saying that something has happened to man, he has become like one of us, then why would man still have to eat at all? Yeah. Yeah. Because God doesn't have to eat at all. <laughs> that's, that's, a good, that's a good argument. So just as a reminder, because this may be the first episode that someone's listening to, uh, Gandalf, Nathan, and myself wholeheartedly embraced Trinitarian doctrine and theology. Absolutely. We, yeah. we believe God has existed eternally in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So just so that you know that, but just because I'm a Trinitarian doesn't mean that I need to read Trinitarian doctrine onto the Old Testament text. And yeah, we, we, don't, we don't want what we hold at a systematic level uh, to thwart our ability to read the story as it's being revealed. Right. Because if it's common knowledge, if it's common knowledge that, hey, the us here is the Trinity, how in the world is it that the Jews in the book of the Acts, when Paul talks to them about receiving the Holy Spirit, they say, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. How could Jews not know there was or, a Holy or, Spirit? Or just what? Yeah. Well, my thing is, if it's blatantly obvious all along, why is the first use of Trinity at the turn of the third century and Tertullian's tractate on baptism. In other words, yeah, this this go. is a revealed doctrine that they're they're coming up with a term, uh, and and certainly and Michael Heiser makes this point. Um, you can have a belief before you have the word that captures the belief, right? Uh, sure. And and Satan, devil, that's a good example of that. Um, uh, if it walks like a duck, talks like a, I mean, swims like a duck, flies like a duck, quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck even if it takes you a while to come across the term duck. Um, uh, so I, I believe that God has always existed in Trinity and as Trinity, uh, but sometimes we're guilty when we read the Bible of, of reading the system onto the story at the expense of experiencing what's going on in the story in real time. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think Genesis is particularly prone to that, yeah. So this mm-hmm. is just our taking the raw data, and again, this is not novel. We're I quoted the King James Bible to you. Uh, this is not novel. 
if you take the raw data, the devil is tempting her to be like the gods, to be like the spiritual beings, knowing good and evil. And that the woman saw that this was good for food. She has been deceived. And Gandalf, you mentioned something a moment ago that said, hey, it just seems like in the story that the moment that Adam and Eve had the opportunity to overthrow God, it's often depicted, it's like, yes, we're going to overthrow God. And we're going to become gods ourselves. That's what we, well, unfortunately, that's reading way too much Reformation theology back into pre-fall uh, Adam and Eve were not predisposed to sin. Adam and Eve were not depraved. They were not totally depraved. Adam and Eve have been created in a state of innocence. She is deceived. She is deceived. The woman did this not to overthrow God. She did this to try to accomplish good. The problem is is that she is pursuing good apart from God. And as we've talked about in previous episodes, pursuing goodness apart from God necessitates that the creation um, or at least the consequence of evil. When we it, pursue it's, it's, apart from God, it will happen. Yeah, it's neat. Uh, to your point about uh, we tend to read back, uh, you know, Reformation era theology, uh, especially about depravity onto the scene. It's interesting that God's comments to Adam say nothing about rebellion. Uh, they, they say everything about the context that's been established in Genesis so far. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree that I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. You, you see that? Like everything was in the context of how man was to dwell initially with God in the garden and then with his wife in the garden. And you see both of those relationships thwarted in the aftermath, but you don't have it called, uh, functionally it is a rebellion of sorts, but you don't have the man's motive uh, being called into question of trying to overthrow God. It's that he took, it's that he took as a determinative word, someone speaking other than God. He listened to his wife who listened to the serpent. Um, and that's, that's interesting for me. I think the grand irony for this passage and, and just a layered aspect of the interpretation if, and again, we, we can't know. This is a possibility. Um, but what makes the devil the devil? You know, what, what sets him against God? By, by, ironically, by tempting the woman to eat this fruit so that she can become more like the lowercase Elohim, he's entering into the purpose and prerogative and assuming for himself the role of uppercase Elohim. And tempting right. her to become more like the gods, he is placing himself rebelliously in the place of the one true triune God. Isn't that interesting? This this is to, to break it down of what is the devil actually doing here. He's attempting to be like the Most High. I was thinking of Ezekiel 28 there and Isaiah 14. And another question that we really haven't answered is when did the devil become the devil? When did he start rebelling? Well... We don't exactly know, but to tie it back in, to speculate just a little bit, and I think this is a safe speculation, because of the drop of the Lord God in everything that he says, that may be a hint that he is already, his, his heart, so to speak, is already in rebellion. 
Uh, and, and it just made ah, me think not acknowledging new- God as the Lord. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, it made me think of all the New Testament passages where the demons freak out when the name of God is mentioned. They just start shuddering. And it's and interesting because so, it's interesting because in the New Testament, when the devil tempts Christ, what does he try to get him to do? Oh, eat, eat. Well, eat and bow down and worship. Oh, bow down. Yeah, there it is. So it's, it's it a is. very Genesis type thing. Yeah. Okay, so for the devil, what I'm hearing is that this is like some Machiavellian, like Macbeth usurping God, but for Adam and Eve, it's more like King Louis for from the Jungle Book. Right, I want to be like you. You, I want to be like you. <laughs> That's right. The temptation that was is Matt to be doing like that singing. Beings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. <laughs> yeah. No, we know we know it was Nathan Van Horn for sure. <laughs> well, we're talking about eating, and you know, uh, Nathan, you always talk about eating as you know part of the act of worship, part of the plan of creation for man, and I. I'm going to act out that uh, plan of plan of creation by going to get lunch, but I'm not going to do like Adam and Eve and choose poorly of what to eat. I'm going to choose the Baptist bird, the Lord's chicken, yeah. Chick Fil A. That's where go. I'm headed. It's neat to go. me that even in a passage that brings about condemnation, we're looking forward to meals of liberation like Passover and ultimately the Lord's Supper. Uh, the devil uses a meal uh, to bring about our sin and destruction. Uh, God will later offer himself as the meal through Jesus Christ to set us free. So what a beautiful thought to look forward to as we continue. Mm, Good work. Well, be sure to join us next week, and we're going to see a little bit of the consequences of these acts of trying to do good outside of God. We'll see you next week, guys. Bye. Thanks. See you later. Shalom. All right.